The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. I'm Maura Ahrensmealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, we look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. I was sitting in a symposium on mental health at work when one of the speakers asked a question that really made me perk up. What does it mean to create a mentally healthy workplace? Now, I'm generally not a fan of modern workplaces. The open office, the lighting, demand for FaceTime, and endless collaboration, and the way that stress becomes a valuable commodity to trade. Ugh, it's not good for your emotional well-being. But the idea that people in big organizations actually wanted to create something better inspired me. So today on the show, we're going to dive in with two women who are working hard to create office environments that support mental health in a way that destigmatizes our need for support and also protects employees' boundaries. It's a complicated equation. There's a practical sort of HR and benefits aspect to mental health at work. What should the company pay for? Does it offer therapy on site? Does it offer an employee assistance program? And what are the ethical or HR even legal implications when an employee is in crisis? But there's also really important social and cultural aspects to an emotionally healthy workplace. So companies are evolving to support employees' emotional well-being from offering on-site therapy, teletherapy, to meditation and yoga in the break room. But as we'll explore today, there are so many questions that arise along the way. How to maintain boundaries? Is it smart career advice to take a mental health day? And what are your coworkers supposed to do if you or a colleague is suffering? Kelly Greenwood is the founder of Mindshare Partners, She's a seasoned San Francisco-based executive with over 15 years of experience in corporate, nonprofit, and foundation roles. She was a principal on the portfolio team of the Skoll Foundation, and she did nonprofit and foundation strategy consulting at Bridgespan Group, which is a spinoff of Bain & Company. Kelly graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Duke University with a BA in psychology and Spanish, and she holds an MBA from the Northwestern Kellogg School of Management, where she was a leader of the Social Impact Club. Well, so tell me, first of all, what is your organization, Mindshare, and why did you start it? Mindshare Partners is a national nonprofit with the mission to change the culture of workplace mental health so that both employees and organizations can thrive. So ultimately, our goal is really to normalize what it looks like to have a mental health condition at work, which is actually most people over the course of their lives. So we do that in three different ways. One is really helping to build the social movement around workplace mental health through thought leadership, free toolkits, events, 
Um, we have professional communities, which are confidential forums where we bring people together who are managing their mental health at work um, to provide peer support to each other and sort of tips and tricks for navigating. And then finally, we do corporate workshops and advising to really help um, empower companies, managers, and colleagues with our trainings and strategic advising to build safe spaces, facilitate hard conversations, and learn tools and strategies to really navigate mental health at work and, and support uh, folks who may be having a difficult time. I'm curious if part of the reason why you started Mindshare Partners came from any personal experience. I mean, was there a specific time you remember your workplace wasn't supportive of your own mental health or anxiety? Absolutely. So I really created Mindshare Partners um, to be the organization that I really wish that my managers and I had had when I was struggling at work. So I have generalized anxiety disorder, which twice in my life has led to debilitating depression. And as a high-performing professional working in competitive environments, I was tremendously ashamed about that fact and keep kept that very close to the vest, even with my family and friends. Mm. Um, so several years ago, I actually had to take a leave of absence um, due to anxiety, which had spiraled into depression. Um, and I was relatively new uh, to a job and was commuting and didn't want to say that I needed to keep my weekly therapy appointments, which would have uh, you know, made me come late in the day, wouldn't have been something that was easy to hide. Um, mm. So I stopped going and really ended up in a spiraling situation. The, the workplace was particularly challenging. They were understaffed. And so that was a time where I would have benefited from more therapy, not less. Um, and quite frankly, I think my leave of absence could have been avoided um, had I not been too embarrassed to ask for what I needed up front mm. or to have been in a culture where, you know, it was okay to, you know, come in at odd hours as long as you were getting your work done. Do you mind if I ask you, and, and if it's if this is hard, it's okay, but you talk about being in the middle of a spiraling um, depression and anxiety. Can you take us inside what that commute felt like on a bad day, what getting to work felt like? That was only one of two times in my life where I have been in a severe depression, and it was physically difficult to get out of bed, which I realize for some people may be hard to grasp. Uh, and for me, it was a strange feeling, but literally my body just felt incredibly heavy. Like it's in um, cement. I always say it's like, it's like, it feels like it's encased in cement. Yeah, absolutely. So it was really incredibly difficult to even just go through the motions. Um, I also had an hour and 15 minute commute door to door that involved uh, driving and trains and walking. <laughs> so uh, it was actually uh, quite a feat just to get to work. Um, and, you know, the whole time I was on the train was just thinking about how I was going to make it through the day and quite frankly, felt pretty numb. I think the interesting thing with depression is a lot of people who haven't experienced it may think that it's a bit more like sadness, but mm -hmm. I actually just felt a complete numbness, you know, and as I've shared with others, I really just was not able to think uh, very well. And that was sort of a combination of the anxiety and depression. But 
um, was very difficult to even craft a simple email, much less do, you know, the, the rigorous job that I was hired for. Yes. Uh, so it, it really felt like I was a completely different person. So I think everyone, <laughs> unfortunately, because many of us have lived it, we have a sense of, a, of a, what a mentally unhealthy workplace looks like. But what does a mentally healthy workplace look like? What, what are the physical and cultural choices that would make a real impact and create that healthy workplace? Yeah, you know, I think it's a combination of several different things. So one is really having um, an environment of psychological safety. And another really important piece, too, is a real understanding of how day-to-day practices can impact mental health Mm. and trying to make a change where possible. So, for example, you know, in a uh, client services firm, you may not be able to control Um, working long hours when it is a result of, you know, client deadlines, but there is absolutely a lot of control in terms of internal deadlines. So trying to make uh, those adjustments where possible to make, uh, you know, work-life balance a bit more sustainable for folks. Um, Another component, too, is really empowering um, managers in particular with the skills to really react to struggling employees and, quite frankly, just tools that any good manager should have in terms of how do you have a difficult conversation at work? How do you create personal rapport with a direct report? So really building a a culture of trust and and vulnerability at work where possible. Mm. And again, there's a lot of quick wins that are really within a manager's wheelhouse rather than having to punt the, uh, you know, punt the ball to HR in terms of uh, letting people get to their therapy appointments without necessarily making them say that that's what they're doing. So in my situation, you know, having an environment where there were no questions asked in terms of if I was coming or going as long as I was getting my work done would have been um, a huge help so that the onus wasn't necessarily on me to have to reveal everything that was going on, but rather, you know, having a, a workplace environment where I could manage my own mental health in a sustainable way without necessarily having to share things that I didn't want to. So what would you say to the manager who's listening to this and thinking, oh, my God, I can't take on one more thing. I'm so busy. They've cut my staff. I'm working night and day. What about me? Now I have to be a therapist for my team. Absolutely. So at Mindshare Partners, the last thing we want is for managers to try to be therapists. That is a terrible idea on so many different levels. Uh, We really just want uh, managers to be able to have candid conversations and trusting relationships with their teams, which is going to serve them well in terms of employee engagement um, and team productivity in other arenas as well. So absolutely here that a lot of teams are short-staffed, managers have a lot on their plate. This is really just um, the confluence of being a caring and compliant professional. So really creating an environment where people can be human at work. It's We really see mental health as the next frontier of diversity and inclusion and really trying to get the most out of the teams that you do have, the people that you do have, statistically speaking. Um, this is a pretty large percentage of the workforce that's dealing with this. We're not talking one or 5%. Right. So it would really behoove managers to just let people be human and, and bring their full selves to work where they want to. Shocking idea. 
Um, <laughs> so, okay, so an organization's thinking about putting a program in place. They've, they've, they've learned about your work. They're excited. What are the questions that they should ask to start? Yeah, so we always really want to start with understanding that particular organization and what has worked there in the past, what they already have momentum around, around inclusion and belonging, broadly speaking. So mental health is obviously already so stigmatized and difficult to talk about at work. It's really best to integrate it where there's already buy-in, both culturally and structurally. So perhaps, you know, there's a lot of momentum around diversity and inclusion or resilience. So kind of using that as an entry point. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also looking at the structures that are currently in place at that or at that organization. Maybe there's a strong culture of lunch and learns, which would be a good opening for this conversation or employee resource groups, um, you know, that may or may not be a mental health employee resource groups. But thinking about you know, the the systems, the structures, and also just the culture that's already there and building from the, a place of strength. We, we really look at um, measurement also in terms of figuring out ways to assess explicitly the, the culture around mental health at that particular organization um, and looking at employee engagement as well. I think that's a really important point, reflecting the values of the organization back at them. So if they're a data-driven organization, emphasizing the data, or if they are a, you know, if if they're an organization that that has embraced certain buzzwords, right, or cultural terms, whether it's, you know, collaboration or radical disruption or whatever, sort of folding that into your recipe book probably is pretty effective. Absolutely. I, you know, I think the exciting thing about mental health is that it really is at an inflection point in this country. And so I think everyone, at least in terms of their exposure to pop culture, understands that, you know, increasingly this is a thing. And we often equate it to where the LGBTQ movement was, you know, 20 to 30 years ago in terms of celebrities coming out about you know, their LGBTQ status. We see that around mental health now, but it's very easy to other celebrities since they have very different types of work environments. They can take six months off at a time without question. They're seen as a little quirky. Right. They don't have to answer. I mean, I see this as an entrepreneur. I mean, what's interesting to me is the othering that I often get when I engage in this conversation with older, senior white male executives is they always say this to me. They say, you know, my daughter she's really anxious. I think she'd really benefit from your work. It's it's, right. it's always a woman in their life who is of lesser status or younger. And at, on one level, I like that because it's empathy. It, they, they do care. They are committed, but it's never me <laughs> or my head of sales or a peer that I really respect who went through depression, anxiety, et cetera. But it's baby steps, right? You know, anecdotally and also in our data, we see huge generational differences around this. And and quite frankly, I don't think that's necessarily prevalence, but more self-awareness and and, uh, stigma. We did a national study this May in partnership with SAP and Qualtrics around mental health at work. And um, it found that mental health symptoms are actually equally prevalent across seniority levels from individual contributors Uh, you know, all the way up to the sea level. Um, But what it also found was, um, you know, there's a lot more self-awareness and sort of self, 
um, identification around mental health conditions when you look at millennials and Gen Z, Mm -hmm. uh, which I really do think speaks to the generational shift in terms of self-awareness and, you know, the comfort in saying, you know, actually I do have anxiety. I do have depression versus, oh, I'm feeling kind of sad lately or, oh, I'm feeling a bit stressed, which I think is what is more comfortable in the older generations. Um, Well, let's, let's talk about leadership and stigma and the role of leaders in erasing stigma. What, what can a Lion or a PNL leader do? I mean, I, it, I would assume it takes a certain kind of leader to ask what kind of culture around anxiety and depression and mental health and addiction do I want to create here? Right. What is what does a good leader do? You know, it's interesting that you ask that. I think we've seen cultural shifts around authentic leadership, around vulnerability in leadership over the last several years. We don't necessarily expect or even need uh, senior leaders to share their own personal stories with mental health or Mm -hmm. in an ally capacity around their friends and family members. That's absolutely what we consider best practice. Um, However, we find that if those leaders or if line managers will share just a bit of their personal challenges, whatever that may be, not necessarily around mental health, we find that that lets people feel so much more comfortable revealing their own challenges, which may be mental health related. We find that people really just need a very small opening to feel comfortable in having those conversations, in you know asking for help when they find that their leaders you know aren't completely perfect themselves. I love that. Um, how do you encourage leaders to help erase stigma around? using benefits or, or, or taking that extra hour to go to therapy. I mean, I, I think of something like paternity leave. You know, we've been drawing allegories here. So many com- companies offer it. So few men actually use it. Uh, how do you encourage people to actually use policies that they put in place? You know, I, I think I think there's a lot that can be done there. One is really just level setting um, across the organization. We find that you know, when we go into companies and do trainings and and strategic advising that we have the best results when we do have a communication that comes out ahead of time, ideally by the CEO, Mm -hmm. um, if not another respected, ideally C-level leader that, you know, tells a little bit about why this matters to that particular person, um, you know, in as much or as little personal detail as desired, but really sort of putting that human face on it and also giving people the permission to have this conversation at work, um, to really know that it's that it's okay to be talking about this in the workplace. And then we really follow that up with with training that ideally touches every manager or at least every every senior leader so that there is a common baseline understanding of what mental health is and isn't, how it shows up at work and, you know, how to have these conversations and and what you can do. We we feel like it really is a top-down and bottoms-up approach um, in terms of the most success. We've increasingly also seen uh, employee resource groups around mental health bubbling up, quite frankly, really just in the last year, wow. which is incredibly exciting and a way for um, companies that don't necessarily have the the buy-in of their senior leaders yet to really build that movement from the ground up within their company if, if that's the change they want to see. What, are they, what do they call the groups? 
You know, they vary widely. Um, So (laughs) some are focused on neurodiversity. Um, Johnson & Johnson has their mental health diplomats. Some have quirkier names than others, as you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I would start the I'm depressed, are you lunch, but it might not sound like a really good time. (laughs) Trying to get into, you know, inclusion and (laughs) positivity. Uh, But yeah, I think one of the nice things about that is that um, inherently employee resource groups, you know, are are aimed at being inclusive and specifically with mental health. Given some legal reasons, you uh, are not necessarily disclosing your own mental health status by joining. So they really run the gamut from folks who have mental health conditions themselves to caregivers and to allies. Um, I'd love to take a moment, if you have any examples or case studies or companies that are doing a great job that the audience might find useful. So we can't point to one perfectly mentally healthy workplace yet. (laughs) Um, To be fair, there are definitely companies that are making amazing strides, but like similar social movements around diversity and inclusion and women's rights at work, this is going to take decades to see, you know, a a perfect example. Um, But there are definitely companies that are making interesting, interesting strides here. So Google has a, an initiative called the Blue Dot Initiative, which was actually started by employees, and it's a compassionate listening program. Mm. So it's not specific to mental health, but oftentimes uh, is most used for that for that purpose. And so employees are trained in compassionate, active listening, um, and they wear a blue dot on their name badges so that they're easily identifiable. Um, and can have these, you know, essentially peer support kind of conf- conversations in a confidential way. Wow. Google has found that to be um, really beneficial. Interestingly, it is not, uh, they don't collect data around that given privacy concerns. So it's somewhat antithetical to Google's normal <laughs> approach. <laughs> but they've realized that to be effective, they actually shouldn't be trying to quantify this. Another example of a of a company doing some really interesting things is uh, Cisco. So mm-hmm. last summer, in the summer of 2018, after Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain's uh, suicides, the CEO, in partnership with uh, his CHRO, wanted to really craft an email to um, the entire workforce addressing this and addressing his support of mental health in general. And after that email got sent, just the floodgates open. Again, to my to my point earlier about people really just needing a small opening mm-hmm. and a, a small bit of permission to have this conversation at work. And so since then, um, they've really started a journey around you know, how they can be more open and inclusive around mental health at work. And so there's been videos of of employees that have been posted, I believe, to their intranet. um, And increasingly, they're looking for additional ways to, um, you know, really bring this to bear at work. Wow. Um, Let's let's focus on employees for a minute. This is going to be your your chance to be a Dear Abby um, advisor. Um, (laughs) Is it smart career advice to take a mental health day? I would never advocate uh, widespread disclosure of uh, mental health because there is so much variability mm-hmm. um, from company to company. So interestingly, um, 62% of missed work days are a result of mental health reasons. However, 
most people at work do not disclose the fact that they have a mental health issue. I think it's something it's 95% of people have taken a day off for stress, but they've said that it was a stomach ache or something else right. that's more acceptable. So I would say it's really at that person's discretion in terms of how they feel the culture is or isn't amenable to mental health. Hopefully we'll get there. Um, and I would say a, a mental health day, unfortunately, isn't isn't the long-term solution. Exactly. Although I do remember when I lived and worked in Britain, people were very open about taking their duvet days. Mm, um, nice. <laughs> they just stayed under the covers. <laughs> well, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> um, what can an employee do when a colleague openly, you can tell they need help, but perhaps the colleague isn't willing or able to be open about what's going on with them? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and again, I think you know, unfortunately, a lot of my Dear Abby answers are going to be uh, case by case. Of course. Um, but, you know, I think to the extent that they do have a close personal relationship, um, the the person who notices something could offer a, a personal story. Again, you know, a personal challenge that they've faced um, around mental health. Again, I think the tricky thing here, and this is part of why we're not encouraging managers or colleagues to try to be therapists, is that a lot of times things that may look like a mental health condition actually aren't, you know, it could be um, something else. So we don't necessarily want to try to get in the habit of, of attempting to diagnose the situation, but it could just be, you know, Hey, I've noticed that you've been having a hard time. Like I wanted, you know, would it be okay if I told you about, you know, a, a tough time that I went through to the extent that they already have, you know, pretty, pretty good rapport. Um, if that's not the case, you know, it might be helpful to to go to HR or to go to that person's manager and just say, you know, hey, have you noticed so and so, you know, maybe at your next check in, you could, you know, just, you know, see if they're doing okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, now on the flip side, and many of us have experienced this, you do have a colleague who you have that personal relationship with, and you know, what's going on in their life, and they're oversharing. And it's like, mm. you, you do feel like you're their therapist. What do you do then? You're really uh, laying it on more. Yeah, I know. Well, hey, you're a professional. Come on. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think in that case, if you do feel like they're oversharing, um, uh, again, I think it depends on your your comfort level and sort of tolerance level for that overshare um, to the extent that, you know, you know, they're in therapy. It might be worth saying, you know, hey, um, I really appreciate you trying seen me with this and I'm, I'm not quite sure how to help. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe this is something that, you know, would be, would be a good question for your therapist. Um, you know, I think that's something actually, uh, the more public I am about my own mental health challenges, a lot of people come asking clinical questions and yes. I very quickly put a disclaimer that I am by no means a clinician. I mean, I can share what's worked for me, but everyone is really different. Um, and so kind of, drawing that boundary a little bit in terms of the fact that you are happy to help be a support, but that you may not have all the answers. And that may be a, a question or comment best directed towards someone else. I think that's absolutely right. And listeners, we will have a whole show about boundaries that will include a little bit of this, although also about how creating your own good personal boundaries can help maintain mental health. But I think that boundaries in general are really important. And and like you, I need to say I am not a licensed mental health professional. So yes. Um, <laughs> 
Well, thank you. That was wonderful. Wonderful, dear Abby. And and just my last my last two questions. My first is if if you could wave your fairy fairy godmother magic wand, what would you want employers to know about mental health and the ambitious professional? Yes. Um so many things. Um I I will <laughs> pick a few. Um I think one of the things that is incredibly important for folks to realize is how common this is. So the latest research shows that up to 80% of people will experience a diagnosable mental health condition at some point over the course of their lives. So, you know, this may be chronic or it may be acute. You know, oftentimes these things are temporary. They're triggered by a job loss, perhaps the death of a spouse or a parent. And a lot of people won't necessarily know that they have a diagnosable mental health condition like depression or anxiety, but were they to walk into a therapist's office or doctor's office, they would meet the criteria. So this is not just a few people. This is, you know, most people. So we really, you know, find that mental health affects every conference call, every meeting and every team. Um, And it's not just your low performers. Um, It really is everyone. Again, our Mental Health at Work report in partnership with SAP and Qualtrics showed that your your CEO is just as likely to have mental health symptoms as, you know, your the, you know, administrative assistant or, you know, your entry level employee is. And so this this is something that really does affect everyone. And some studies show that it actually does disproportionately affect your your top performers. For me personally, my anxiety has been helpful to a point at a lot of times in my life. It has made me more ambitious. It's made me, you know, strive potentially harder because of that anxious fuel. Um, It's only sometimes that it proves unhelpful. So I think those things are really important to know, just really busting some of those myths around the prevalence and around the type of person that affects I would say another thing that's really important for people to know is not only is it the right thing to do to pay attention to mental health at work, but it's also really what's best for the bottom line. So certainly we see this as the next frontier of diversity and inclusion. It's often the opposite of how we typically think about diversity and inclusion. So often when we think about that, it's you know recruiting quote unquote other people into our organization to increase the level of innovation around the table. With mental health, you already have these people in your workforce on all of your teams. You just don't know who they are. So in addressing this and really increasing their sense of belonging within an organization, you are really increasing your your team's productivity. So um, there's also a very real cost savings component that goes along with that too and, and increased employee engagement. Allison Nassisi has been in the thick of it, most recently in her role as Director of Compensation, Benefits, and Work Life at the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Mass. Now, Broad isn't your average workplace. Its staff are literally working on the cure for cancer as well as many other diseases because the Institute was founded to seize on the opportunity that arose from the Human Genome Project. So the Broad Institute brings together quite literally some of the world's most intelligent, skilled, and curious people to do this really important work. And needless to say, for an organization like this, talent is everything. People are everything. 
When I met Allison, when I heard her speak at a conference, she said that creating a more mentally healthy workplace had to be baked in to an organization like the Broad Institute. And, and that stuck with me. She was really matter of fact about it. The people who work there are intense, driven, passionate about their work, possibly stressed out, more likely to be millennial, Gen Z, and probably more open to seeking mental health care than other workforces might be. So for someone in a role like this at a place like the Broad Institute, or indeed many technology-first organizations, which is many of them these days, the challenge isn't if your organization must create holistic and comprehensive mental health care, it's how. I met you and I loved how you talked about mental health and work as if it were the most normal thing in the world, which of course I think it is. Tell us, what does a mentally healthy workplace mean to you? You know, it's it's come full circle, really, in terms of mental health in the workplace. We've always been able to talk about physical health easily. You can talk about your knee surgery um, with your colleagues. Nobody bats an eye. When you start talking about therapy at work, people really sort of back away and, and are, are a little bit nervous about talking about that in the workplace. So to me... Leveling the play of playing field between physical health and mental health is really important and is something that will help reduce the stigma in the long run. So sort of reducing stigma all around so that people feel like it's just sort of a normal piece of their life, maybe. Exactly. It's just another thing, people, another challenge that people deal with. Um, everybody has something that they're dealing with, and they bring it to the workplace. And we know that um, through the research that we've done over time, that uh, that Generation Z is um, dealing with anxiety and depression more than any other generation. And they're all coming to our work environment. So we have to be ready. We have to realize and understand what it is that we need to do to um, support them and make them productive. So looking back, I mean, what are you proud of in terms of what you've done in your career to help employees have better mental health? My employer at the Broad Institute, we were very much um, supportive of employees with mental health challenges. We knew through data, through our medical data, and just through anecdotal data, hearing people talk about the challenges that they're facing, that this was an important uh, initiative. And we'd been doing a lot of things that a lot of organizations do, things like yoga in the workplace, mindfulness. Um, we implemented an EAP, Employee Assistance Program, which offered counseling sessions to employees who felt they needed it. You know, those those were the kinds of early kinds of wellness initiatives that we launched. And we realized that it wasn't enough. Mm. And we really started thinking about what would really make a difference, what would make um, physical health and mental health equalized. And the things that we, we started to look at were policies, mm -hmm. such as our leave of absence policy, co-pays in our medical plan, how could we equalize or minimize the out-of-pocket expenses associated with um, what employees have to pay for therapy versus a regular doctor visit. Um, so these were things that we started to um, implement or look into and research and think about how could we really make an impact in these areas. 
we also um, start brought in speakers that could um, address the community and sort of normalize conversations. NAMI came in, um, and you know they they have speakers that can talk to your organization, uh, and they really National Association of Mental, Mental Illness, Illness. exactly. Um, and they bring in people that actually have dealt with these kinds of challenges and how they've overcome it, and what they're doing to um, sort of you know express um, how they've been dealing with their struggles and how others can emulate Mm -hmm. their um, approach. Um, And and when we did that, we realized that people really want to share what they're dealing with. When you give them a forum to raise their hand and say, hey, I've been struggling with something, they take that opportunity to do that. So take us inside, because in your role, obviously, you have to, I would assume, take cost into account. You have to take legal issues into account. I mean, you are accountable to people running the organization who ultimately have to run a good organization. You want to make your individual workers feel happy and fulfilled. You're straddling both worlds. (laughs) Did you have to sell in increased support for mental health to the higher ups? Because a lot of what I hear from especially younger employees is, I feel this way, but no one cares. My boss doesn't care. They have their own stuff to deal with. And all we want to do is make money anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Talk I think through that. Any, any decision where you're spending money in an organization, you really have to sell it. You really have to have your data and be able to tell the story of why this is an important initiative. And I've been fortunate enough to work in a variety of organizations where senior leadership has always been supportive of ensuring that employees can integrate their work life with their home life. Why? And why do those why do those leaders care? I, I think I just pick really good organizations. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So listeners, if you're looking for career advice, ask Allison. <laughs> no, but seriously. But, but at I the mean, end of the day, I think what, what matters to senior leadership is that people feel productive. It's a branding issue. They want people to it, – it's a tough market for, mm-hmm. for talent. They want to be able to tell the story that, yes, we support our employees. We're looking at all the ways that we can help them achieve – whatever their goals are. And if it's mental health support, then that's really the way to go. If it's caregiving or whatever the issue is, it's it's important to senior leadership generally to do what's best for their employees because they know at the end of the day that, that these are the people that are going to make your organization successful. Hi, I'm Kwame Christian, CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, and I have a quick question for you. When was the last time you had a difficult conversation? These conversations happen all the time. And that's exactly why you should listen to Negotiate Anything, the number one negotiation podcast in the world. We produce episodes every single day to help you lead, persuade, and resolve conflicts both at work and at home. So level up your negotiation skills by making Negotiate Anything part of your daily routine. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So let's let's go down to the nitty gritty. In your experience, um, what happens after an employee comes to their manager and says, I'm struggling? What is the process or what do you think is should be the process, mm-hmm. ideally? First, we want people to be able to share that kind of information with their manager. Often they don't feel um, supported or able or comfortable to, to share that information. So what happens is you end up with performance problems that are masked by uh, or performance that appears it appears to be um, you know work related as opposed to mental health related in in really open situations where a manager is approachable, um, when an employee shares that information, you know, generally in organizations like the Broad, there is an employee assistance program where an employee can make a call and be connected to um, therapists who can help triage them to the right care that they need. We also had uh, our Broad Life office, mm-hmm. which... Um, there was actually an, a manager of the Broad Life Office, our work life office, that was able to help triage employees who appeared to be dealing with mental health challenges and was able either to get them to um, the EAP or help provide them with other resources to help um, facilitate whatever challenges they were facing. What would you say to people? I mean, sometimes I see data of utilization of EAP that's quite low. You know, it's one thing for a company to have a have a provider. It's another to get them to use it. What would you say to someone who is really ambitious, wants to get promoted, wants to succeed, who says, no way. If I go to that office, if I make that phone call, it's going to be a, a black mark against me. All EAPs are confidential. Uh, that's that's how they're marketed, and it's actually a fact. Mm-hmm. So the organization never gets any um, specific information about who called or why they called or what the outcome of that um, interaction was. Um, what the organization does receive is just aggregate data. So they know what are the issues our community is facing and can help build a, a, you know, a response to help folks who are dealing with mental health issues or anything else. And and prim- usually in organizations like Broad, the primary reason someone calls is for behavioral issues, mental health issues. What are some other ways, if people aren't disclosing mental health or asking for help specifically around mental health, that you might see data that gives you sort of a hint that there might be a problem here, but it's, mm-hmm. maybe it's showing up as something else. I think one way to identify issues is really understand what's going on in the teams. Mm. You know, with with peers and managers, they're the first line of defense in these situations. Um, something that's kind of showing up as um, anger or, you know, somebody who's not performing to mm-hmm. the best of their ability, you know, sometimes that's masked as... 
performance issue when it's really a mental health issue. So giving managers the uh, tools they need to engage in conversations is really important. It's also really hard to get managers to want to engage. Sometimes they feel they're stepping over the line. They don't want to... um, you know, probe too much. It's personal information. Um, and so there's a fine line in understanding how can we get managers to, to do something when they see something, but also not overburden them? Because that's that's really not something that an organization wants to do. What's a good question a manager sh- can ask? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you coach managers to ask if they have an inkling something's wrong, but they're nervous about saying it? I, you know, it's it's really just being human. It's mm. it's just asking, <laughs> just asking the question: Are you okay? Mm-hmm. I've noticed something. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that you've been really tired lately, or mm. I've noticed that um, you've been coming in late, or you're not hitting your deadlines like you usually do. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Just opening up the door to and inviting that kind of conversation would, is is a first step. Yeah. Although really hard on the other side, if you're depressed or you're anxious to actually not see it as a dark, a dark accusation, but a question of caring. I mean, it's, it's, that's complicated. It is complicated. What kind of mistakes have you made along the way (laughs) that you're comfortable telling us about? I mean, what do you wish you had done that you know now in in creating mentally healthy workspaces? Mm -hmm. I think that, um, it, you know, sometimes, like I said, a performance issue is, is masking a mental health issue. And these things don't resolve quickly. Mm. Um, you really need to give people time to sort of figure out how am I going to function day to day with the challenges I'm facing. And so I think sometimes in organizations, we rush people to feeling as good as they can, they can and bringing their best selves to work. And it takes time. And we can't expect this kind of um, problem to resolve overnight. And so as uh, all organizations need to think about how long can they support a person who's struggling in this way. Um, now, obviously, at, at the Broad Institute and in, in many of your roles, you're dealing with a very skilled workforce that, that's hard to come by. And organizations invest a lot in these people. What's your advice to people in your role who might be working with an hourly workforce or um, people who have maybe less of a cushion to fall back on in a crisis because they aren't postdocs from Harvard or MIT who are extremely highly sought out? I think for for organizations that are primarily hourly employees, I think I, I would fall back on just being human again, and really just listening to um, employees and taking the invitation to engage in conversation with them if something presents itself. Not every organization has the resources to have an EAP or be able to triage somebody to on-site therapy or that kind of thing. Um, But again, just opening up the conversation and listening and, you know, thinking about how how can you support this employee is really the, the best solution. I'm curious also, um, 
as we're talking, as we're talking about Gen Z, let's generalize here, um, that, that if they might feel more comfortable talking about their own anxiety with each other, is there any work that you've done to try to encourage boundaries around that discussion? You know, I mean, I think that at work, sometimes when you're a close team, you can sort of forget you're at work and you disclose a lot and that might make other managers feel uncomfortable. How do you how do you help people feel open, but also sort of boundaried? I think um, offering or, or coming up with an, a method of getting people to engage in conversation with people who are open to it mm-hmm. is a really good idea. And one way to do that is to have employee resource groups or ERGs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not every organization is doing this yet because it is kind of a scary conversation to engage in, bringing people together to talk about mental health. But I think people want to engage in this conversation if given the opportunity. So offering an employee resource group that employees self-select into, it's Mm -hmm. not required, they can just attend and have sort of a community of folks dealing with similar issues. It is a really great um, way to get people to open up. Because it's the right time and the right place. Exactly. Yeah. What's the future of mental health at work? That's a good question. I think we're just scratching the surface now. Um, ultimately, everybody wants that there to be a reduction in the stigma associated with talking about mental illness, mental health. To get there, I think we have a long way to go. I think it's things like equalizing policies when it comes to mental health and physical health. Things like uh, ERGs, where people can talk about it. Um and, and really just opening up the conversation. The first step is really listening to your employees. And if someone says they're tired, don't just say, oh, go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> say, why are you tired? What's going on? And, and really kind of hearing what your employees, what your colleagues are talking about. So what should the uh, CEO or the head of the organization do in order to create this kind of culture? I think being open to it and not shying away. It'd be great if if leaders would express their own challenges and share what they're dealing with, whether it's themselves or family members or whomever. Um, Just getting the conversation started is the first step. Hi, everyone. It's Maura. So... I have exciting news, which is that the show will be back for a season two in spring 2020. And I really can't wait to talk to more people, explore more um, incredibly, to me, fascinating um, aspects of our mental health lives and our journeys. And I really want to hear from our listeners. If you have an idea for a show or you'd like to tell us your story, just drop me a line anxiousachiever at gmail.com. That's right. Just send an email to anxiousachiever at gmail.com. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, 
my producer, Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. <laughs>